Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the US, the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Today, we're speaking with Maria Ludic, a psychotherapist and executive coach and the founder of Aspire Counseling. As an American in Singapore, Maria has some amazing insights about life and work in Singaporean culture. In this episode, Maria shares her professional tips for self-care and how to reduce anxiety. We hope you enjoy this episode. And also, if you are looking for more mental health tools on how to reduce stress and anxiety, then check out our sister Facebook group, the Freelance Forum, where you'll find many courses we've created in partnership with Centred to support your mental health. Head to facebook.com slash groups slash the Freelance Forum to join. Hi, Maria. How are you today? Hi, I'm really good. How are you guys? So good. And you clearly sound American. However, (laughs) you're not calling in from America. So do you want to let everybody know where you are? Yeah, so I am American, but I am based in Singapore, and I've been living in Singapore for the past 24 years. Oh, crazy. What, so what is uh, what brought you to Singapore, and what is the story? We can't wait to get into it. Yeah, so, um, so actually, I, I grew up as, a, as an expat kid. Um, my mom and dad both um, had jobs where they were working overseas, and about every four years, we moved. So I grew up in um, in Paris, in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Rome, and in between then, we would go back to the U.S. for a couple of years each time. So, wow. um, so I actually wound up, uh, I was working, I graduated from university, and I was working um, actually in politics in Washington, D.C., and my parents had moved from Italy to Singapore, and I decided it was a really good time for me to just get some international work experience on my resume and, you know, have some free rent so I came out to Singapore with the intention of being here for about six months. Um, and a, an old classmate of mine helped me get a, a job out here at a headhunting company. Mm. And about um, five months into that, I met this guy who was also American, and we really hit it off. And so I decided to stay a little bit longer, and I wound up staying for 24 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's an amazing story. And Singapore is an incredible city. I mean, it's, it's a really yeah. beautiful place to be. Mm. It's amazing, and it's changed and evolved so much over the last 24 years. It's really incredible. Was it hard moving around so much when you were younger, or do you feel like that um, experience has really shaped you in a great way? Or both? <laughs> I, you know, I think it's so interesting because a lot of people will say, gosh, it must have been so hard. And, you know, didn't you, you know, wish that you could stay in one place? But I think if that's all you know, and I think for a lot of third culture kids, um, you know, it is. It's all we know. And and there's pros and cons. But I think one of the, the greatest benefits for, for me and I think for a lot of third culture kids is you become so adaptable and you become very skilled at um, – finding connections with people, right? Mm -hmm. So you become really good at saying, okay, well, you know, what is the one thing that I can relate to with with this individual, whether it's, you know, um, something that's cultural or religious or social or, 
anything because as a third culture kid, that's what you're always trying to do. You're always trying to make connections and try to find a way to, um, to relate to other people. So I think for me, that's, that's, you know, been something that I really valued and appreciated. That's great. Do you think it made you more adaptable to change as well? I do. Although, you know, um, I, you know, I think change is hard for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, you always try and find, you know, for, so I, th- I think for me growing up, my constant was change. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I think when I don't have change in my life, I look for it and I seek it out. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, I get bored, I think, quickly with things. And I'm always looking for new ways to, to shake things up. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I'm always looking to move house. I'm always like, <laughs> I just love, I find it really exciting. I think it's, it is like a boredom thing. So my mind's all over the place. Yeah. But um, yeah. cool. So what's it like living in Singapore? And, and when you first moved over there, what were the biggest changes that you noticed between Singapore and the US as a woman working? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it was really, it was, it was hard for me. Um, you know, some of the things that are so interesting about, you know, Singapore and I guess in Asia, um, in the workplace is when you go in to apply for a job and it's starting to change a little bit, but when you go in to apply for a job, um, they want to see a photo. So you put a photo on your CV is what they call it here. Mm. Um, and questions like, you know, are you married? Are you planning on having a family? Um, those are not off the table. That is totally acceptable to ask. And they ask that um, to men as which well, for me, or just women? <laughs> um, they will, but I think more, you know, that it is still more, you know, they want to know, are you planning on having a baby soon? Because that means you're going on maternity leave or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and those kinds of things as an American coming here, you're like, you can't ask that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, but, but it is very, and you know, they, they used to put out advertisements, um, being very specific about, you know, we're, we're seeking for, you know, a female between the ages of, you know, 22 and 28, (laughs) um, they might even put a nationality. Um, so when I first came out here, I was working for a headhunting company that was all, so Singapore is very, very ethnically diverse. Mm. Um, it really is a melting pot. Um, they're, um, you know, and the traditional makeup of, of cultures are, um, Chinese, Singaporean, Indian, Singaporean, Malay, Singaporean, and then you have your huge um, expatriate community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will put out in their job, uh, you know, searches, ethnicity. You know, we're seeking a female wow. Chinese or we're seeking <laughs> a female, you know, Indian. And, you know, you have to speak, you know, t- Tamil or you have to speak Chinese. So, so those things, you know, coming from the US that yeah. was a bit shocking <laughs> is, is that because I mean, of the language though because they need someone who can speak Chinese some of it is, for yeah, I think some of it is yeah some of it is because of the language but some uh-huh. of it is just you know there are workplaces that are very much geared towards one ethnicity right. um, you know like I said the headhunting company that I worked for was all Chinese Singaporeans there was no variation in, in nationality and I was the one token expat Um, And so in a lot of ways, it was interesting for me because I learned so much about um, the culture that I wouldn't have learned had I been in a more um, ethnically, culturally diverse office. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it was really interesting for me. Huh. Did you have an emotional reaction to any of that coming from, I ask because I probably would. 
like coming, like seeing them advertise for a 22 year old female. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. You do, but it is also, you know, you also have to keep in mind that, you know, you are a guest in, in their country and mm. this is the way that they do things. And, and this is the, the cultural norm in the country that you're in. Right. Um, and I know particularly, you know, uh, as we are having this conversation, you know, fast forward a little bit to where we are now in Singapore and, and how Singapore is managing and handling the pandemic. Um, and I work with a lot of people, um, obviously, in Singapore that are you know, that are being challenged by um, the, the repercussions of the pandemic and, and what is happening. Um, and some of them actually have a very difficult time um, with the way the government is so involved in your everyday life. Um, and as somebody who has now been here for 24 years, um, I don't have that challenge anymore. I'm, I'm very much, uh, I've become very Singaporean in my mentality of big government and, you know, uh, the idea that the government will take care of me and I should follow the rules. And mm. um, Singapore has done a phenomenal job with managing the pandemic. Yep. But it is interesting, you know, that that cultural difference, yes. um, you know, coming from the U.S. and having that feeling of, you know, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I have, you know, my rights. And, and Singapore is, is very different. I've, I have that, experienced the same thing. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear you say that. I, Australia has done a phenomenal job overall with mm -hmm. the pandemic. And it's it's a little different, though. I think the culture is pretty different mm -hmm. than Singapore. But there is an element of the government takes care of me, takes care of people, yeah. and they're yeah. on my side. And it's yeah. it's interesting. You know, they provide health care, public health care over here, and all mm -hmm. of those things that America mm -hmm. doesn't provide. And the attitude here is... You know, we look after each other's well-being before we worry about our own personal rights. Yeah. There was uh, a think tank mm -hmm. um, where they surveyed people in countries all over the world. Um, and the questions they asked were like, like kind of how, how much do you trust the government? Uh -huh. um, and, and all of these kind of questions on, you know, rights and freedoms and, and stuff like that. And, and how much of a community-based culture that people have. And the countries mm -hmm. that trusted the governments the most directly correlated with having the best handling of the pandemic. Huh. So yeah. it goes to show that, like, if you come together and, you know, it, not even necessarily authoritarian ones, like Australia and New Zealand don't have yeah. authoritarian governments, yet the trust in government is high yeah. and it's meant mm -hmm. that they've been able to pass things like mandatory masks and being fined if you don't right. have it, whereas in the US, if that happened, yeah. there'd be uproar. And yeah. even in the UK, mm -hmm. it's very much kind of people are, we have the, the healthcare service, but there's still a, a definite culture of people being out for themselves. And it's, yeah. it's funny how those cultures develop over the time and yeah I, th I thought that was a really interesting start mm. okay so yeah. we've sidebarred a bit but <laughs> back, back to your story yeah so you came over you're working for headhunter you met a guy um what happened after that yeah, so I, I kind of transitioned um, out of hand hunting into advertising. Um, mm -hmm. And I like to say, you know, I my background was in politics, and politics and advertising are actually not very dissimilar. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, so I started working in advertising, and then um, when it was, we, you know, so the guy that I met, we decided to get married, and we got married, and by the time it was time for us to start a family, 
um, I had kind of made the decision that I knew I knew I wanted to keep working, but advertising was not most conducive to raising a family. It's you know lots of long hours. You're kind of at the beck and call of your clients, and my husband had a very demanding job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided I was going to take some time off, um, and we went on to have three three children. So I have three sons. Um, and by the time the last one came along, I had already decided that I wanted to go back and I wanted to get my master's, um, and I wanted to, um, work in counseling and psychology with the idea that eventually I could have my own practice and it would be more flexible and, you know, allow me the freedom to, um, set my hours, be at home with my kids when I wanted to be there, um, and still do something that I was really passionate about. Um, so, so that's what I did. So I went back and got my master's when my, when my third was a baby, um, which was interesting and challenging in yeah. and of itself, having two toddlers and a, and an infant going back and getting my master's. Um, but then after that, I, I started working at one of the, uh, private, uh, hospitals here called Raffles Hospital in their, um, counseling and psychology center. Um, and so it was kind of baptism by fire because they wow. have a huge counseling center and, you know, they come in and they do assessments and then they kind of send you um, whatever cases um, they, they think are the best fit for you. So, um, you know, you get everything from people that are dealing with some really severe psychosis, um, schizophrenia, um, severe bipolar issues. And you're managing them in the hospital with a team of psychiatrists and psychologists and um, other wellness professionals. Mm. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get people that are coming in and they're, you know, they're facing um, more um, simple life transition issues, um, um, you know, career changes, uh, moving, um, uh, retirement, you know, just different things in our lives that are that are challenging. Mm. Huh. Um, so I really got to see the, a really broad range and, and, um, like I said, it was a huge, huge learning curve, but I couldn't ask for a better environment to, to really start to get to know, um, the areas that I excelled in and the areas that I really enjoyed working people in. And then that allowed me to specialize a little bit more. Mm. And when did you start, um, Aspire Counseling then, which is your own business? How long after you yeah, so, finished? Yeah, so I started Aspire Counseling. Um, it'll be coming up on five years now. Um, yes. So I opened up my own practice. And I, I still consult at Raffles Hospital, but um, I'm probably about 90% of the time at my own practice, which I love. Yeah. What was it that made you want to start your own practice? Um, I think, you know, part of it was just be working in a hospital. It is very much a, a clinical medical model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the tendency is to um, assess, diagnose, and treat, uh, which, is, which is fine. But what I didn't like is I didn't like um, even just the physical environment, the treatment rooms, are doctor's offices. Um, so you don't walk in and have that warm, uh, welcoming counseling office. You mm-hmm. walk into a doctor's office with you know, the bed there and the plastic and there's, you know, a desk. And um, I just felt like it was very uh, formal um, and not as welcoming for clients. So just, you know, that just the physical aspect of it. And then also just having the freedom to 
um, work with patients in some different ways that I didn't feel that um, I was able to do in, in such a clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just being able to set my own hours, being yeah. able to, to yeah. do things with clients that were outside the realm of what you could do in a hospital setting. So you decided, okay, I want to do it my, my way. I want to make it an experience of people so they feel comfortable. What were the first steps that you took to actually start your own practice? And what were some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, so I was very, very fortunate in that I had um, some really great mentors. So, um, you know, as, as part, and when you're a therapist, you have to, you're required ethically to always seek comp, uh, supervision, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a supervisor that you meet with, um, usually weekly or, or biweekly. Um, so I had a phenomenal supervisor who was very, very encouraging. Um, and then I also had um, my boss at the hospital who, um, is kind of a legend in Singapore. He, he is, um, you know, in his 60s and just everybody in Singapore knows him. And he's just very, very good at um, kind of helping you say, okay, well, you know, what is the obstacle that's preventing you from doing this? Pretend mm. the obstacle isn't there and let's move forward. Um, and so he was great about saying, look, I think you should give this a try. But if you give it a try, you've got to understand um, – it's going to take you a long time to be able to really make money to be sustainable. So, you know, stay, stay on our payroll for a little Mm -hmm. while. Um, and you know, we'll help you. And so he was great. So, I mean, one of the biggest, and I also have to say too, that Singapore as a country is super supportive of entrepreneurs. Um, so even things like going to the bank and, you know, getting that all set up, I actually found as a woman, um, a lot of support, um, just in the banks and, and, you know, helping to incorporate and set up my company and finding rental space. So I really couldn't have had a more supportive, um, environment to, to get started. But let me tell you the first day when I, you know, officially, you know, quote unquote, opened my office and I was sitting there and I was sitting there and I was like, I don't have any clients today. (laughs) (laughs) That was scary. (laughs) You're like, this is a day when I'm paying rent and no one is paying me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So So then how did you get your first clients to come to you? What were some of the first like promotional things that you put in place? Mm. Yeah. So it was, so that was actually a place where I found, um, actually my advertising background came in handy. So I reached out to a lot of different, um, local publications. I reached out to a lot of the expat groups, um, you know, just to tell them what, what I was doing. I started running some, you know, free, I would do like a free half hour wellness consultation. Um, and that actually brought a lot of people in. Um, and they, you know, kind of the, the end of the, the, the half an hour session would be up and they were like, but wait, I'm not, I'm not finished. And I was like, that's great. Come back again. And this time you can pay me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that helped. And then word of mouth, I mean, word of mouth in Singapore. And, and I think particularly in the mental health profession mm. is critical because, um, you know, people don't as openly talk about when you move to a new place, people are always asking, okay, I need, you know, a new hairstylist or I need a doctor or an osteopath or where do I go, um, you know, to, to get my shoes repaired. Yeah. But talking about therapy 
you know, there is still a bit of a stigma there. Um, and so, you know, that word of mouth in terms of friends confiding in friends mm. is really important for therapists. Um, that and just getting your, na- your name and your brand out there. So I did run, you know, a few um, advertising campaigns and some of the, the local magazines, um, which was hard as a new business. You're kind of, you know, investing in it and you're hoping that it's going to pay off. And, and I do feel like it did. Um, so those for me were some of the biggest and, and my old clients too, keeping in touch with old clients that I had worked with. So I had to sign a non-compete agreement. But what I did was I just said, look, I'm starting my own business. And if you know of any friends or, um, you know, colleagues that you think might be interested in, um, even if it's just some wellness services or some coaching, because I've often found, so I'm also a, a certified, um, International Coaching Federation. I'm a professional uh, certified coach. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people feel more comfortable saying that they would like to get some relationship coaching or some anxiety management coaching than they do saying, I'm going to go for counseling or therapy. Yeah. they, so you have to, so basically packaging it, relating it to the specific problem that they feel comfortable with kind of admitting. So you're getting yeah. into their psychology for seeking help. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coaching kind of implies yeah. self-improvement in a way that counseling implies like getting help. I don't know. It's like a, yeah. the, like yeah. it destigmatizes it yeah, a little definitely. bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It does. It does. I've also does. noticed that. And there's actually a fine line too between coaching and counseling, you know? I mean, so mm. people that, if you're only a certified, not only, but if you are a certified coach and you don't have, uh, you know, mental health uh, qualifications, um, you know, there, when you're doing your training for coaching, you're taught you know, if an issue comes up, such as, you know, someone is experiencing depression or they're having suicide ideation or it becomes something that's more of an emotional issue, that's where you refer out. The nice thing about being a therapist and a coach is you have the ability to kind of pick up Mm -hmm. where that coaching experience ends and say, okay, actually now we're transitioning into an area that is more therapy work. And so you then reset the, the agreement, the contract with the individual about, okay, we've moved from coaching into therapy. You know, is this where you're happy to continue and move to? Yeah. You mentioned that you do um, work with like anxiety and stuff and and, it's, and mm-hmm. it sounds like um, you kind of really specialize in things that people in like professions or business owners really go through, um, like burnout and stress and, and definitely anxiety. Do you feel like um, anxiety levels have gone up in the last year from like from like clients you've seen absolutely um you know I think globally and this is such a a unique and interesting time period for for all of us um but I don't know that you know especially in in modern history that there's ever been a time that there has been such a pervasive global sense of uncertainty and anxiety Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for all of us, even if you don't normally or regularly experience anxiety, um, there's just a constant low level um, sense of anxiety and uncertainty, right? So mm-hmm. uncertainty brings worry and worry, you know, transitions into anxiety. Yeah. Um, so I think all of us now 
can say, I understand what you're experiencing to a certain degree Mm. when you're experiencing anxiety. Um, Mm -hmm. For people that have always struggled with anxiety, some of them are kind of like, yes, now you can understand what I live with every day. (laughs) It's so true. There's never been like, apart from like, obviously we've never lived through like a, like World War Two or anything like that personally, but it feels like wartime yeah. kind of collective mm-hmm. sense of uncertainty and anxiousness and, and everyone can relate. Like you could speak to anyone like on the bus or wherever and you've got something in common with how we're all feeling at the moment. I think that's like, it's kind yeah. of like in a way help to like bind people in some ways. Like, I don't know, mm-hmm. yeah. you feel more connected even though it's, awful what we're all going through yeah Sylvia Mm. and I always talk about we're both very natural empaths Mm. and it's hard because like both of us have had moments where we just like it it can break you down if Mm -hmm. you let yourself kind of but I think the interesting thing about the past year is that it almost equalized people whether you're naturally empathetic or not yeah it was so bad on so many levels that even the people who aren't naturally empathetic can Mm -hmm. feel for others now and maybe a way that they couldn't before is that what are you seeing that or yeah I mean absolutely I I think that's what I meant by you know people that have always struggled with anxiety yeah in some ways I think there's a little bit of validation there now that you know that everyone can on some level relate to that feeling of anxiety and that that the rumination that people with anxiety, the struggle is always what if, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think for every run right now, we've, we've gone through a period where we're, we're doing that what if, because there is no certainty. We, you know, looking, you know, six months ahead of time, none of us now are absolutely sh- certain what life is going to look like. You know, are we going to be able to go to that graduation? Are we going to be able to go to that wedding? Are we going to be able to have a vacation? Are we going to be able to see, you know, our college friends or our extended family members? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the past, that didn't really exist. You know, yeah. if I want to go to the graduation, of course I'm going to go to the graduation. I'm not yeah. going to miss it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that uncertainty for everyone like you said, it, it becomes um, something we can all relate to and we can all understand how each other is feeling a little bit. Yeah. So we love to have tips as part of the podcast and, and you share your advice mm-hmm. and, and best ways to like deal with certain challenges and problems. And then we kind of feel like the yeah. best... The best thing we'd love to know is how to deal with uncertainty in everyday life. Like, Do you have any tools or tips for how to kind of deal with this feeling of anxiousness and uncertainty well can I add to that question just a little bit are there different ways that you can deal with like you know one problem is uncertainty another problem is anxiety another problem is overwhelm Mm -hmm. you know and maybe there's different ways to deal with each of those things I don't know what are your thoughts yeah so you know with every single client that I that I work with um, for me, at the core of this and, and the foundation for overall wellness is, is self-care. Um, and I know self-care is something that it's very trendy right now and everyone's kind of throwing it out there. But when I'm talking about self-care, what I'm looking at is um, I'm looking at four different areas. I'm looking at your physical self-care, your intellectual self-care, your emotional self-care, and your spiritual self-care. So mm-hmm. the acronym that I use with all of my clients is PIES. Um, 
uh, you know, P-I-E-S. And it's just a, a nice way to, to remember, um, you know, the different areas of self-care. Yeah. Um, and so physical self-care, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Are you eating well, right? Are you mm. eating a, a well-balanced diet? Are you sleeping well? Are you moving your body? Um, and I say moving your body instead of exercising because I think sometimes people get, particularly when you're feeling anxious or stressed out, you get overwhelmed by the thought of, oh my gosh, now I've got to incorporate this crazy exercise routine into my <laughs> life. And it's not about um, running 5Ks every day or you know going to the gym and, and doing CrossFit. If that works for you, great. Mm-hmm. But if not, I'm more concerned about just, are you moving your body every day? And moving your body can be as simple as you know going for a walk um, around the block. It can be um, you know putting some music on for 15 minutes and just dancing around your, <laughs> your room. It's just about moving your body. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other thing is making sure that you're addressing and taking care of any underlying physical conditions that you have. So if you have diabetes or if you have high blood pressure or um, you know, you've sprained your ankle or whatever the case may be, making sure that you're taking care of yourself physically too, mm-hmm. right? So just are you looking at your physical self-care? And then intellectual self-care is more about are you stimulating yourself um, intellectually, are you engaging in the things that you're interested in? So mm-hmm. again, can be as simple as reading a book, um, watching a, a, you know, a, a, a documentary, um, listening to an interesting podcast, um, you know, those kinds of things, just making sure that outside of work, outside of school, outside of the things that you quote unquote, feel that you have to be learning, mm-hmm. are you learning for fun? Yeah. Because really, that you know, that's that's what we should all be doing as human beings is continually learning and growing. So that intellectual self care is important. Mm. Um, and then emotional self care is about how are you processing the emotions that you're dealing with. And for a lot of us, that's that's our connecting with others, our friends, our family members, our spouses, um, playing a musical instrument for a lot of people is a way that they can express and process their emotions, journaling, counseling, reading, writing, poetry, um, any of those things helps us to process and work through our emotions. And then that last area of self-care, that spiritual side is about giving yourself time and space for um, really reflecting on what is your life purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like yoga, tai chi, qigong, um, just being in nature is mm-hmm. really important. Um, so those kinds of things. So when I'm talking about, you know, how do you start to manage it, that's the foundation. So we look at those four areas as the four legs of a chair, right? Yeah. If those are strong, you can put a lot of weight on the chair. If those areas aren't strong, then as soon as you start to put weight or stressors on it, it gets wobbly. Mm-hmm. So that really becomes your foundation for how do you handle stress? How do you manage your anxiety is first you got to look at your self-care because if you're not prioritizing yourself, then all the other demands become a lot more challenging for you to deal with. Mm, yeah. I The last point, the spirituality point, which I think is super interesting because people sometimes shy away from it because they think that it means religion mm. or like mm-hmm. something like people who are not into religion or don't want to like you know get 
their spirituality that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't like you don't have to join a yoga thing. You don't have to, you know, like spirituality could be like acts that you do that, you know, allow you to live by your integrity. You know, it yeah. could be giving back yeah. in some way. It could be like there's so many yeah. things that spirituality could be. And I think that is something that people neglect. But human beings need purpose. Mm. So we get it in all different ways. Right. Like spirituality yeah. is like the expression of that purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I love what you were saying, because, you know, one of the other things when, when you're looking at um, how do you kind of get out of your own head is helping others. And yeah. reaching out and connecting with other people. Um, and that's actually one of the biggest things that I think is important for all of us to be doing right now is to making sure that we're making connections. Um, there's so much isolation, um, sometimes, you know, enforced by countries when you're going into lockdown. Um, but just really making sure that you are reaching out and making connections in, in whatever way that you can, whether that's, um, you know, setting up, you know, Zoom calls and having, you know, coffee hours or happy hours with friends or phone calls or, you know, within your pod of people, mm-hmm. making sure that you're connecting, even if it's just, you know, hanging out in the driveway <laughs> yeah. and having a chat. Um, but that connection is so vital because as human beings, that is one of our basic needs. I agree. That's the thing I craved the most was connection with friends and family um, during this time. Do you... Um, think that we should be reading the news if we're feeling anxious (laughs) or is that something that (laughs) I don't know it just the way that the news comes across is quite like urgent and it just all Mm -hmm. seems bad I don't know I feel like I'm happier without the news but I'm wondering if there's a way that I can continue to read it without letting it affect me yeah so I think that's a great question and and to be honest with you I've you know over since you know, March of last year, there have been several of my clients that we have decided that them staying off of news and off social media is important for them in managing Mm. their own wellness. And that's a decision I think everybody has to make as an individual. But certainly if you're finding that, um, you know, watching the news is creating more stress and anxiety for you, Mm -hmm. then you don't need to watch it. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have kind of set up an agreement with their, their significant other or their roommates to say, look, I want to stay appraised of what's going on in the world, but I don't want to watch the news because it's just too stress inducing for me. Mm -hmm. So they almost Mm -hmm. get like, you know, a little summary, right? These are the things that you need to know that's happening. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, then it's up to them to decide, Hey, do I want to go online or do I want to turn on the, the, the TV or, you know, listen to a podcast or, you know, listen to a newscast and get a little bit more information on this? Or am I happy just getting, you know, a a little executive summary? Because social media and the news right now is is very um, triggering for a lot of people in terms of that, you know, that level of stress or that uncertainty. And and the news media is always going to sensationalize everything. That's how they sell, right, Mm -hmm. is to sensationalize it. And how they get you to come back and get into an addictive spiral of refreshing the live events. <laughs> yeah. How do you find, can I ask, do you find, because yeah. um, you've been, um, you've had this business for several years now. So how in the last few years have you, 
have you been having more conversations or seeing people be more emotionally affected by social media in general, even pre-pandemic? Absolutely. Um, and I think particularly, so I, I work with a lot of adolescents. Mm. Um, and that is an area that is so challenging right now for adolescents because they're, you know, it's, it's completely unrealistic for um, adults and for me as a therapist to, to say to my teen clients, stay off social media altogether. Mm. Um, it's just not going to happen. That's how they communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's hard for us as you know, people that are a little bit older because we didn't necessarily grow up with social media. But for them, it really is one of their main forms of communication. Um, It creates a tremendous amount of social pressure and anxiety for them because there's no escaping it. Um, When, you know, so I'm 46. So when I was a teenager, if there was a party and I didn't get invited, I might not even know about it until Monday when I went to school, right? Mm, But for these kids, it's instantaneous. They know exactly what they're being left out of. They know exactly what they're being excluded from. Um, And, you know, it it creates so much pressure and so much anxiety. And everyone's posting photos and everyone's, you know, Snapchatting everyone. Um, So there's this idea that every moment of their life has to be you know, it's got to be Instagram worthy. It's got to be worthy of posting and and talking about. Uh, And that's so much pressure. Yeah, I agree. This has been really, really lovely chat with you, Maria, and lots of food for thought about how we can actually help our own mental health and use the PIES framework um, going (laughs) forward. What what are your aims for Aspire Counselling in 2021 before you wrap up? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, my aims really are, like I said, um, I'm, I myself am going through a huge transition. So my family will actually be uh, moving from Singapore back to the U.S. after 24 years. Mm. Um, and so for me, it's about, you know, how do I take Aspire Counseling and, um, and transform it into something that is going to be of, of value um, in my new environment? Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, I want to take it and and continue working with it. But I, I, my, my goals are really to look at expanding it more from uh, just a therapy uh, framework and look at wellness um, coaching and consulting overall. So over the years, I've been transitioning more and more into to working with corporations and working with organizations and how they can best support their employees in terms of overall wellness. Um, and so that's the area that I see myself transitioning into a little bit more, um, being able to impact more people on a, on a broader spectrum, um, doing more talks and engaging with, um, with people in that way in terms of anxiety management. Um, mm-hmm. That's the area that I'm really passionate about because I feel like if people have tools to manage their anxiety, um, it prevents you from spiraling into lots of other areas, um, you know anxiety and depression are are kind of cousins, we call them. And, you know, if you can learn, if you can have tools so that you can manage your anxiety, lots of times it helps prevent that spiral into depression or a spiral into um, obsessive compulsive disorders or um, from engaging in other um, maladaptive coping mechanisms like you know, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sex addiction, those kinds of things, because those are all just coping, 
coping tools, right? Yeah. Not great coping tools, but it's what, you know, oftentimes people default to. Yeah. Um, so those are the areas that I really see that I would like to focus on in, in 2021. That's amazing work and good luck for your move. That's so exciting. If um, if they want to find you, what, what what's the best way for them to find you, to work with you, speak with you, find out more about Aspire Counselling? Yeah, so the best way is just to go online and it's just the go to the website, which is just www.aspirecounseling.net. Um, and you can go to my website and it lists all the different services and the ways that um, we can work together. And um, you can read some of the articles that I've written and um, other publications and, and magazines. Perfect. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Keep in touch. Chat soon. I know. Thanks. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.